This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hello and welcome to Lens Me Your Ears. This is a movie podcast where we watch something new in cinemas and connect it to older films in the genre, otherwise connected to the film we saw, and hopefully you'll uh, hear about some movies you might not know about. My name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer. My blog is called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And I'm Stephen Cook, and I'm an arts writer with the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. Today we are talking about queer cinema. We're talking about films where people of the same gender love one another and other genders love each other. And it's a lot of love, I hope. <laughs> uh, we, we certainly felt the love for the film that is up for now for a Best Picture Academy Award. That is Call Me By Your Name. So we're starting off today by looking at a new film called Call Me By Your Name that is uh, you know, a film that kind of has taken a lot of people by, by storm, if you will. The, the film uh, became uh, very acclaimed sort of late in the year. A lot of people were putting it on their best of lists. And, of course, as usual, it was a little bit slower to come to Halifax uh, than usual. But, uh, you know, if you're familiar with the work of its uh, its director, and I know I'm going to mangle his name because my Italian pronunciation is uh, the pits, but uh, Luca Guaraguino. Um, that was pretty nicely done, Steve. Yeah, well, I put a little extra sauce on it, but... <laughs> I'm prob- I probably got it wrong somehow, but uh, I'm, I'm sure with time I'll, I'll, I'll get it down. It took me a while to get to Guillermo del Toro correct, so I'm sure I can invest some time in Luca's last name. <laughs> um, you know, I, I fell in love with his work with I Am Love uh, with uh, his uh, frequent collaborator Tilda Swinton. Man, wasn't that a great film? A fantastic movie. And then I missed a bigger splash. It played at the Oxford for like it's, a week. It's or actually like on Netflix now. So I recommend right, people well. check it out. I didn't like it as much as I Am Love, uh, but it is it is great. Mostly uh, Ray Fiennes is terrific in it. Uh, I would watch it for him, his performance alone. Well, I, you know, I'll watch anything with Tilda Swinton in it and uh, – so it's it's definitely high on my list of things to catch up with, uh, and uh, and this film was kind of, some people were kind of positing it as part of a trilogy about relationships. Although, uh, according to IMDb, they've announced a uh, a sequel to Call Me by Your Name. So so I guess that kind of trumps the whole the, the whole trilogy thing goes out the window if that, if that film ever comes to comes to light. But um, it's uh, it's a fantastic film, sort of a, a, a youthful romance about a, a boy and an older man. Uh, in in Italy in the 1980s, it captures that feeling of time and place so well. It, you really want to hop on a plane to northern Italy by the time this film is over. And uh, it, it's uh, based on a novel by Andre Aseman, and uh, and the screenplay is written by James Ivory, of course, from the Merchant Ivory uh, filmmaking uh, team. And um, it, it's kind of I, I didn't even know when I saw the film. I hadn't really done much advanced reading about it, and I was surprised to see his name up there. Um, yeah, I mean, and his name will come up again later in our podcast when we talk about Maurice, which is a film that he made during the uh, you know the peak years of the Merchant Ivory uh, uh, filmmaking uh, partnership. The, uh, the the film is, is is very evocative in the way it portrays the life of this young boy. He's kind of the center of the film, and and uh, you know he's he's got this very charmed life. His parents uh, are academics. Uh, his father is uh, is kind of a I guess uh, classic art slash uh, archaeology scholar. He's always examining old sculptures and, and ancient bits of art that are being pulled up out of lakes in, in North Italy. And uh, and he you know, they live in a, a lovely kind of almost palatial home in, in Northern Italy. And, uh, 
and you know they're American, really, but they're kind of citizens of the world, as it were. And uh, one summer into his life comes um, basically Army Hammer as the uh, the golden boy American Oliver, who um, I guess he's a student or you know like a I guess a grad student of, yeah, of, so. of his father's. Every summer they bring someone over to kind of assist in in his uh, research and so on. And uh, you know they just sit around eating great food and, and swimming and and just living the life of Riley basically over there in North Italy. Um, and of course, uh, you know Elio is is uh, what is he sixteen seventeen yeah, uh, and he's kind of just figuring things out in terms of love and and, and sexuality and so on. He's he's got a, a French girlfriend, uh, but he's uh, he's completely entranced by Oliver. And and the way the the relationship plays out is 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 amazing because. At first, they kind of there's kind of it's kind of a love hate sort of thing. Like they kind of joke at each other and make sort of cutting comments, and and um, you know Oliver kind of wants to keep him at a bit of an arm's length because he does feel the attraction and is is kind of worried about what that means to uh, you know to to his standing, to his relationship, uh, to um, Elio's father, played by Michael Stuhlbarg, who is fantastic and should have been nominated for a supporting actor, I think. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> um, and. Uh, and so it, it plays out that eventually a romance does develop. Um, you know, you know, Elio still has this relationship with the French girl, but it, it's clear that uh, that Oliver represents this whole adult world to him, and uh, it's uh, you know he's just completely fascinated and just really, really kind of tumbles after that initial kind of love hate period. And and the way it's portrayed is really, I don't know, it felt really true and it felt really. Um, I don't, I don't want to say accurate, but it, but uh, it doesn't really make a false step along the way. I felt it's it's almost uh, perfect in the way that relationship unfolds. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. This is a film where, in fact, I think one of the things the film I think does really well is that at the beginning, uh, Elio is a, is is kind of you know he's cocky. He's you know he plays piano really well. He's clearly you know loves. He speaks all these different languages. The whole family speaks all these different languages, <laughs> yes, the- and they're so w- well educated and so charming. And he's he just and he kind of knows it. He's good looking, you know. And then uh, uh, Army Hammer's um, Oliver shows up, and uh, he's also kind of cocky and American, and and he, you know later he always says when he leaves any later, <laughs> you know. And it's very and and you know it's the pop collars and the whole eighties thing, and and neither of of the leads seems terribly uh char- they neither of them really <clears throat> warms up to until they start to warm up to each other and i think that's one of the things the film does really well is it like it lets us get to know them as they get to know each other and how they are very tentative with each other at first and you know miscommunication abounds in the first act and they're trying to they're kind of checking each other out and it's, it's you're not really sure what's going to happen here and if it's going to be maybe kind of unpleasant but as it unfolds we all we we are on the trip with them, and uh, it, it is this incredibly beautiful surroundings. You know, as you mentioned, uh, young men and women they smoke cigarettes, they don't wear very much. Windows and doors are open all the time to the Italian breeze, whether it's day or night. Everyone is sitting around eating, eating peaches and drinking wine, and bicycle rides are frequent. And if you notice. When people go on bike rides in this movie and around this Italian town, they just leave bikes or they don't tie them up or anything. They don't lock them. They just leave them outside of shops or outside of cafes or up against a handy tree. Uh, and uh, and then there's a lot of 1980s pop music going on, which is really charming. And 
the etymology of the word apricot is discussed. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's and, and sexual attraction is is very fluid. It's you know within genders, it's beyond outside of gender, it's across genders. It's it's totally lovely, and and you start to realize I think as you go along, like there are so many of these movies that we see that explore same-sex love are tragic, you know? And I think a lot of people in the gay community, and here we are, you know, two white middle-aged straight guys talking about <laughs> movies about gay people, but, you know, um, I, I, I would hate, so I would hate to represent uh, uh, the ideas or, or uh, you know, conversations that are happening within the LGBTQ community about films necessarily, but, but I have read, certainly a lot of people complain that gay people in movies often suffer, and tragically, and it's just, and it becomes really tiresome, that trope. And, you know, I think, I think you know about halfway in that the worst thing that's going to happen here is a little bit of heartbreak, maybe. But everyone is so loving and so supportive, and this, this is such a, a, a warm place that uh, you can, everyone, I think you feel safe in this story. And, uh, and I just came away just feeling so touched by it. It's funny, I was just thinking of, I was watching the film, and I kept thinking of all the money in the world, which takes place in Italy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Rural India. I kept ex- <laughs> I kept expecting characters from that film to kind of wander through the background of, of this uh, of this. Film. But that's a, that's an Italy that's very dark and menacing, and the Red Brigade is is on the loose, and these organized crime figures are kidnapping millionaires or billionaires' sons, uh, grandsons, and so on. So it's kind of it's kind of weird. The the two films kind of open almost uh, next to each other, and both set in the same setting. I think I think this, well, this is obviously a decade later, so it's a little different. Um, in terms of the political climate, but but uh, but yeah, the the sunshiny. I mean, you can enjoy this film without worrying that somebody's going to die or or get beaten up or or you know lose their job or you know which you know which were all very real threats fa- faced by members of the gay community at, at that time. Even though it was a you know decade after Stonewall, there was still a long way to go. Um, so uh, to to have this kind of pastoral. Uh, Examination of of a of a budding summer romance is 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 kind of refreshing in that regard because we certainly have uh, lots of examples of of the latter of the threats and the the kind of danger that lurked on the on the on the fringes for uh, for members of the gay community through uh, through several decades. Um, the uh, it's it's funny because I, I sort of you know I grew up kind of knowing families like this you know the, the, they go off on sabbaticals to teach in Europe and all this kind of stuff and you know had. Uh, you know, would would have more, you know, more sophisticated taste than suburban Dartmouth, uh, your average suburban uh, Dartmouthite, and uh, and 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 this film is kind of like a flashback to to those kind of memories uh, that I've had of other pe- people, who, families who traveled more and and you know spent time abroad and so on, and uh, you know, and, you know, I had a little bit of taste of that, you know, going to Europe as a thirteen year old and and that sort of thing. So so parts of this film kind of resonate in that way, in that uh, you know. The, being immersed in this other world where it's, you know, it's similar. It's, it's Western as it were, but it, you know, steeped in a completely different culture and, and, um, you know, a much more ancient culture. And that keeps kind of bubbling up to the surface, especially, you know, right from the get go, really, because there's, uh, the, the opening credits are kind of close ups of, of statues of the male ideal, as it were, um, that had been presented in, in, in Roman art from centuries and well, millennia ago. Um, so it was nice to be kind of back in that world in a way, and uh, and to exist in that, in that way, and and uh, it's it's just the you know usually romance is, is usually uh, kind of a plot device in a lot of films. So often that that very few films sort of get it right, 
and uh, in the way it develops, uh, you know, the, the romantic comedy is kind of killed. <laughs> <laughs> the actual depiction of, of of romance and relationships in films, and and the way this unfolds, and and uh, and that his parents are are they're, they're kind of observing from a distance, and and uh, they don't uh, they kind of see what's going on. And the the father kind of owns up to having maybe a similar kind of past or relationship uh, sort of before he got married. Uh, is all it's all very refreshing and, and comforting and very real. Yeah, and I think. There, there's something about it that does. I mean, obviously, Guadagnino, excuse my attempt at pronunciation, <laughs> uh, is a is an Italian filmmaker, and that he made his film mostly in English gives us kind of a, a an open door to this European sensibility. You know, it does have a Romer esque sense of character and a and a meandering kind of. Uh, a lightness in the plot, uh, but also a Bertolucci sense of natural beauty and fine detail. I think he's channeling some of these great European filmmakers in his in his film. Uh, and I really like the performances. I really like Chalamet, who is up for best actor, lead actor. I, I'm suspecting he probably won't win, uh, no. not with Gary Oldman, uh, you know, the, the favorite. Um, but... Uh, but you know he's a young actor. He's very new, and uh, and he's been great in this and in uh, Ladybird Lady Bird this yeah. year. Uh, but here he channels. He seems to absorb the spirit of every like '80s American movie teen in a way that he puts on those Ray Ban Wayfarers. <laughs> you know, he's like an unholy amalgam of young Tom Cruise, Sean Penn, and Judd Nelson. But I think he might be actually a better actor than those guys. <laughs> yeah, I'd say, especially at his age. You know, he he manages to be cocky, but entirely vulnerable when it counts and uh you know it's easy to see how he would be interested in oliver and it's easy to see how oliver would be interested in him and you know i mean you were talking about the thing the ways the film uh connects with you and your past experience it certainly does does with me uh and i spent some time in my teenage years wandering around europe uh and you know i remember what it was like to be 17 and obsessed with with love and sex in a way that uh that felt very pure, and I think the film does a great job of of creating a kind of um, enchantment around all of that. Yeah, and uh, and and Army Hammer, of course, uh, has never been better. Of course, he t- he tends to get um, you know a little derided for much of many of his career choices. I think he's just good looking, and he you're right, he does he does uh, he's got a little bit stiff in some roles. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I think the first time I liked him anything was in uh, Man from Uncle. Uh, where he kind of put that sort of cocksure veneer to good use as um, I think he was playing Napoleon Solo in that. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah. Or, and, and, um, or no, he was, he or was, he was Russian. Oh, he was Ilya. Okay, Ilya, yeah. But he was also but it still he, works. He, he was also in. The, he played the dual role in the, um, uh, the social Winkle, the, the social yeah. yeah, the Winklevi. <laughs> I think that was sort of his first uh, major role that brought him to anyone's attention. And then, uh, but then there was Legend of the Lone Ranger and and oh, uh, yeah. Uh, that terrible J. Edgar Hoover movie that Clint Eastwood made, right, <laughs> which is right. just was just wrong on so many levels. Uh, so you know, hopefully this redeems him in some way, and that he'll, um, you know, branch out. Into, I mean, this is you know, not a big splashy Hollywood film. It's it's an unusual choice considering his track record, and he's very good in it. And uh, I'm guessing a, a lot of actors uh, would probably resist this role, even you know, even today, the idea of um, you know playing a playing a role like this and and. Uh, you know, openly expressing passion for another man is, is something that uh, a lot of actors might have difficulty with, uh, and, and that actually might come up in another film we talk about later in the show. Uh, but um, 
but uh, but here he's he's fantastic. He never uh, he never flinches really, and uh, you know it's just funny because he just seems like maybe he's subverting that all American golden boy kind of persona um, with with this role, and 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 it works incredibly well. Some of the strongest dramas in the past decade have been films about same-sex love. I, I, I'm thinking, of course, of last year's Moonlight, which was quite a, a real triumph. Uh, Carol from 2015, uh, going back to 2013, Blue is the Warmest Color, and of course, Brokeback Mountain from 2005, which is a film I remember when it came out, a lot of people joked about. I mean, it was the gay cowboy movie, right? But mm-hmm. honestly... If you have seen it, if, I don't know if you've seen it lately, but it is an absolutely devastating story. Uh, and even more so now, I think, now that Heath Ledger has died. It just is more heartbreaking than ever. It is really, it's really a wonderful but incredibly sad film. Uh, you know, and there was a time when I remember that it seemed like the only films without gay characters were comedies, the sort of casual fall years, uh, which, of course, begat the the birdcage. And when I was a kid, I remember seeing George Hamilton in Zorro the Gay Blade. Of course, I was too young to really get what that was about. I just sort of went over my head. But I just, I really liked Zorro, and I really liked that he had a twin brother named Ramon who was so flamboyant and, you know, liked to wear bright colors other than black. Uh, but... Uh, but yeah, I mean, over time, there have been great ones. Uh, I, I don't know if you remember River Phoenix and Keanu Reeves as gay hustlers in uh, in my own private Idaho. Of course. Of course, Gus Van Zandt. Um, and I think, you know, a, a tip of the hat to uh, Pedro Almodovar, who is maybe one of the most popular and most critically celebrated directors in the world. And, uh, you know, I think he's – we could fill a whole episode full of, uh, you know, talking about his films. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, going back, of course, it's harder to go back before, you know, before the 1970s to find overt uh, queer – content in in feature films uh you know some of that is is sort of subtext but uh but you were talking about uh steven you were talking about the boys in the band which is a film i hadn't seen uh william friedkins from 1970 and i guess it's probably a, a major milestone in in the history of uh, queer cinema well for sure i mean the uh the production code that kind of determined what could and could not go into uh studio films uh in hollywood uh and you know and be shown in theaters, uh, you know, across North America and so on. Uh, pretty much put the kibosh on on having overtly gay characters, especially in a relationship of any kind, uh, in in feature films. Um, certainly, there would be kind of coded characters scattered throughout cinema history from uh, as soon as the code came into place in 1934. Um, but something like uh, you know Marlene Dietrich kissing another woman on the lips in Morocco that could not happen after 1934. Um, uh, pretty much an, an openly uh, le- butch lesbian character in a pre-code film called Blood Money that is a great film, but very few people have seen it. It's not commercially available as far as I know. Um, something like that, of course. No way. Could not see that in a film after 34. So, you know, generally you had like a, a slew of character actors that played, and if you'll pardon the term, pansies, uh, which was actually used. In, you know, W.C. Fields would, would use the term in... Uh, in an international house when confronted with Franklin Pangborn, who often p- played very effeminate men. Um, so it was always kind of, like I say, coded like that. And, of course, the, the documentary Celluloid Closet would be your first stop to go for for all the examples of this. Uh, that's, it's, a, it's an invaluable film uh, with lots of examples of 
of, of films from the silent days. Um, you know, there was a, a, a German silent called We Who Are Not As Others that, that was a lot more open about it with, uh, with Conrad Veidt, who was a well-known German actor at the time playing a gay man. And, uh, and, right, he was and, in Casablanca. Yeah, he's in Casablanca. He was in the cabin of Dr. Caligari. That's kind of where his career really got off the ground. Um, uh, but he he was willing to take a few chances until the you know the, certainly the the um, the Nazi regime kind of shut down that kind of freedom in terms of German cinema. Um, but there actually were a few other examples. There's a Machten in uniform, which is a story about a girls' school uh, that came out just before the hammer came down in in, in Germany. Um, I think even Diary of a Lost Girl with Louise Brooks, which is a silent film uh, by G.W. Pabst, kind of hints at that sort of thing. There's certainly a, the the matron in the girls' school who is very clearly you know, repressed lesbian character. So uh, there certainly were examples leading up into the early 30s. And and if the code hadn't come down, maybe maybe things would have gone farther a lot sooner. But as soon as that happened, uh, again, uh, lots of coded, you know, subtle and not so subtle uh, hints at characters uh, through the 50s and into the 60s. Uh, One of my favorites is uh, there's a film noir called The Big Combo. And there's a a pair of... um, was a pair of hitmen who are clearly in a relationship of some sort. They they don't you know they don't really come out and say it, but there's hints that these two guys are, are actually fairly intimate. And I think one of them is played by Lee Van Cleef, if I'm not mistaken. So okay, wow. Uh, uh, it kind of presages the two hitmen in Diamonds Are Forever. Right, I remember them, <laughs> Mr. Sure. Mr. Wint and Mr. Kid. But um, the, you know, which is played, of course, way over the top. Whereas in this case, it's you. You probably would watch the film and not really think about it, but if you watch about it, watch it with in the right mindset, you could kind of spot spot the clues. But that was basically how it went. You know, there were, you had to look for the clues in terms of language or or um, or body language or whatever. And then uh, that started to soften in in the fifties and sixties as uh, some of the more progressive films from Europe were starting to show up on North American screens. Films by Ingmar Bergman, often. Often as exploitation fare, because there might be a hint of nudity in a film. Like uh, one of the famous ones is uh, Igmar Bergman's uh, *Summer with Monica*, which is a very, um, you know, very uh, sensitive and delicate look at a, at a, a budding romance between a young man and a young woman. Um, and you, I think there's one scene where you see uh, Harriet Nielsen from behind as she's running into the waves or something like that. And, and you, and uh, so that gave them enough fodder to market it as, as kind of like a Va va voom kind of sex and, movie and Swedish and know. Swedish. Oh yeah, Swedish became a became a, a buzzword for anything kind of um, hot and sexy, and 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 they'd be shown in theater. This is kind of the birth of the grindhouse circuit, um, where they'd show anything that was sort of mildly salacious, and they could pump it up with with brouhaha. It's just it's it's kind of funny to see some of the early Bergman films being promoted as these kind of you know wild uh, subversive movies and. Um, and uh, we, we looked at the trailer for a film. We, we didn't watch the actual film, but Therese and Isabel, which was um, made by an American, but made in Europe with casts of people. They, they, they got a lot of actors who were like third or fourth build in major foreign films to appear so they could give it an air of class. But it's about two, two schoolgirls uh, falling in love. Uh, and it's about 67, I think. So uh, this would have shown on that similar kind of circuit by a, a director named Radley Metzger, who would go on to make uh, a lot of um, sexually charged dramas like Score and the Licorice Quartet and Camille 2000 and that sort of thing. I'll shoot them in Europe and, and give them that kind of 
classy sleaze, I guess, is, is the best way to describe <laughs> I, I, his I work. love that you pair those two words together, the classy sleaze. Well, but that's kind of what he was going for in, in those films. And, and, uh, and they had a fairly, and those films have a fairly sort of open attitude towards sexuality, you know, going back to Tress and Isabel. But, uh, but it was marketed pretty much as an exploitation kind of film, even though it was European and classy at the same time. It was not being shown in the best of theaters. So, um, uh, the, you know, it's kind of interesting how that whole sub-genre of film kind of developed. But uh, but in the late 60s, the production code finally uh, fell by the wayside, and uh, and and filmmakers could address more uh, more adult topics. And uh, Boys in the Band is one such film. It's uh, directed by William Friedkin, but a group of gay men gathering to celebrate a birthday party and and kind of kvetch about their uh, their problems with other men and other people, their jobs, and and it was really a groundbreaking film and that was one of the first for the most part realistic look at the lives of, of gay men in, in a sort of metropolis metropolitan setting um new york at, in this case new, new york in, in the late 60s and uh, and then of course one of the one of the men has his straight roommate from college his life is falling apart and he comes over and he's kind of caught up in the midst of this very lively gay party in um in the heart of Manhattan, and it's you know it's very frank in its language. Uh, you know we're hearing. A lot, I'm sure this film used a lot of language that hadn't really been heard in uh, feature films up to that point. The c word gets brought out twice within the space of five minutes, and that was that was a major breakthrough right there, for better or for worse. Um, and it's uh, you know it's it's interesting to watch it now and see the you know because the portrayal of gay men in this film is really all over the spectrum. You've got some very uh, campy, queeny characters, and then you've got some very um, right down the, the middle kind of characters, and, and and then you've got a bunch in between, and and it's um, you know, it's it's almost like we're kind of testing the waters with this movie, trying to figure out, okay, what's acceptable. You know, this is this film was released by 20th Century Fox, a major studio that had uh, had had some luck with some boundary pushing films like The Valley of the Dolls and Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which was a massive hit, but was you know some people felt was below the studio, uh, but it made reams of money, so why not uh, keep going in that direction? And uh, it's it's not exploitative at all. Uh, it, it's based on a play, and it, it kind of feels like a play. Most of it takes place in this one apartment and the and the um, the patio setting, but uh, but I'm sure for a lot of people it was refreshing to see gay lives portrayed in a way on screen. That was not um, not exploitative, and um, and fairly true to life. Even though some of the characters are a bit heightened for the film, I think, and probably were on the stage as well. But uh, but it was a major step forward for sure. Now we also watched uh, Sunday Bloody Sunday, which is just came in a year after the Friedkin film, and, and it's directed by John Schlesinger. This is a film that I had no knowledge about until you suggested it as something we should watch for this uh, conversation. Uh, but interesting that, uh, you know, Schlesinger just coming off the success of Midnight Cowboy. This was his follow-up, and, you know, you mentioned the boys in the band being directed by William Friedkin. These are our big names of the 70s uh, and uh, of this era of, of, of filmmaking who are uh, are dipping into these these areas of of the sort of cultural conversation, and I I find it fascinating. Though though uh, 
uh, and I hadn't, I had not seen, like I said, I hadn't seen Sunday Bloody Sunday, didn't know about it, and uh, I really enjoyed it. It's, oh, it really surprised movie. me how great it, th- this was. I mean, I, I knew that it would be quality from this filmmaker, but uh, it basically tells the story of a love triangle, a very unusual one. It's London in the early 1970s, and everyone's concerned about the economy. There's a lot of, like, back <laughs> yes. background noise about how the economy is failing and, and everyone is, you know, things are tough in the city. Um but uh, Glenda Jackson plays Alex, and she has decided to leave her profession, her job. And she spend she's when we meet her, she's spending a weekend taking care of five terrible children belonging to a couple that she knows. Uh, but it also gives her a chance to play house with her lover named Bob, uh, who's played by Murray Head. Uh, Murray Head might be familiar to those of you who uh, he's a British theater actor who, in the seventies and eighties, did a lot of of musicals. Of course. Uh, he sang One Night in Bangkok, which for your 80s uh, uh, music uh, uh, trivia, that uh, that might uh, ring a bell. Um, Bangkok, Oriental City. Right. <laughs> yeah. there's, there's your earworm for the day. There you go. Uh, he's a long-haired, sort of free-spirited chap who makes odd modern sculptures. I don't even know if you'd, what else you could call those things he does. But anyway, he's, uh, his, his, his uh, professional life seems to be going pretty well. Uh, but Bob... Besides seeing Alex, is also seeing Dr. Daniel Hirsch, who's played by Peter Finch, and who's a kind of a closeted professional who was raised Jewish, but seems to be quite distanced from his heritage. He's, he's, he seems like sort of a lonely guy and uh, has this, you know, big house and apartment and, you know, both... Both the doctor, Doctor Hirsch, and Alex spend their time waiting for Bob to show up and and spend and sort of you know uh, grace them with his presence. And everyone knows the situation here. Everyone knows that that Bob is kind of a free spirit, and he's you know he's he's there. Uh, when he wants to be there, but if he's not there, then mm-hmm. then it's okay. And it's it's very cosmopolitan. It's very European. But but I really enjoyed how. Uh, at least with Alex and with the doctor, they they struggle with the relationship. They're not entirely happy in it, but they respect the boundaries of it. And the one thing about the film I sort of wish they had done is to have a little flashback to how this started. Like how did how did the the relationships and in plural uh, establish? How did they set the ground rules and and how was that done? Was it explicit or is it just kind of understood? Um, certainly by this point, nothing is explicit. It's all just kind of there. Um, and uh, yeah, I, it feels very civilized. And, and even in 2018, watching it now, I felt fairly progressive. Yeah, it, it hasn't aged uh, badly at all. It, it's, uh, you know, the swinging 60s are over. And, I, you know, I think that's I think that was kind of the, as you mentioned, that subtext about constant news reports about economic downturn and all this kind of stuff. Like, it, it points to you know where things are heading uh, in the in the forthcoming Thatcherite years. It's it's very pressing in that way. And uh, but it, it's clearly like the '60s are over. You know, this is like 1970, 1971, uh, and he's he's basically like putting the cap on that. Like you know the, that cool Britannia thing is 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 done and and we have to get on with our lives now and uh, uh it's it's interesting that the midnight cowboy of course shows you know New York City and Manhattan very much in decline in a lot of ways um so it's interesting that it, it kind of fits in rather nicely with that film even though that film's you know about a, a guy from Texas who comes to New York to become a male hustler thinking he's going to get all these high class ladies when in fact it's the only people interested in, in a you know good-looking cowboy are going to be uh, gay men, which he has to kind of uh, get adjusted to. So uh, 
in a, in a very kind of seedy, rundown looking uh, New York City, Manhattan. Uh, so here here we get London, as, you know, kind of on the precipice of of a similar kind of downturn. And um, and and Murray Head is quite fascinating. He didn't have much of an acting career. It's uh, you know, it's almost like he did this, and then all of a sudden, you know, fifteen years later, he's singing uh, singing the ABBA musical Chess. And one having a worldwide hit with One Night in Bangkok, but of course, in between he had other records and was on stage. And he played Gawain the Knight, and in, in, I think that was his other notable um, uh, feature film. Uh, and uh, with a ton of character actors, and that film seems to have vanished without a trace. But uh, you know, he, he definitely plays one of those characters who's like incredibly kind of suave and good looking, and knows it, and just basically gets away with things because he's suave and good yeah, looking. Yeah, he's like his and, his his charm and his handsomeness is, is like a commodity. Yeah, exactly. And 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 he just gets a pass. You know, like people, well, that's just him. You know, and I've known people like that my whole life who just get away with everything because purely looks and charm uh, are half the battle apparently. And and uh you know, people ex- oh, you know, they get like a special hall pass, you know, because well, that's just the way they are kind of thing and and um and so it's it's but it's not something you normally see portrayed in films because it's really hard to make that kind of character likable. Yeah, and and yet it's it's the great thing about this film is no, it's non-judgmental across the board. Like like in a in a film in 1971 and the doctor is is gay and he's having the and and the 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 film doesn't punish anybody for any of their decisions. It's just kind of like this is this is the way that they worked it out and they're having to kind of manage these these complexities between people. Yeah, and and even uh, you know you you kind of ex- things you expect to happen in this film don't uh, you don't uh, you know Bob basically doesn't have to pay for any of his behavior um, it's it's just the, the 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 way of things and uh, you expect there's going to be a big showdown maybe with uh, with Peter Finch and Glenda Jackson and that doesn't really happen um, you know they just uh, kind of accepted this is the cost of you know having this uh, person that we're kind of obsessed with in our lives and. And we just kind of get on with it, and um, and it's it just again it all just uh, it just unfolds very naturally, and and uh, and I just love the portrayal of these characters. The um, you know the stuff with the and it's interesting that like and then uh, Bob is actually you know they're spending that weekend with those kids, and he's actually really good with the kids. Like he he actually like relates to them maybe because he's a bit of a you know free spirited child I guess maybe, but but he's he actually relates really well to the kids and you know you kind of wonder like well you know would he settle down and grow up unlikely but it, it could happen who knows um and uh you know it's just it's just a great look at those kind of people that pass through our lives in one way or another hi i'm Lindsay cameron wilson and i am host of the food podcast now this is not a cooking podcast we'll talk about the history of food we'll meet the players in the food world and we'll explore the ingredients that fill our lives with flavor. Check us out on iTunes and Stitcher. We'd love to hang out with you. So as we see with Sunday Bloody Sunday, uh, it seems like uh, British filmmakers had a much better handle on portraying uh, gay love, gay relationships, great gay life in the movies. Than their North American counterparts. Uh, I was, I, I just, I want to briefly mention a movie, and I remember as a kid, um, I think I was about 15 when this movie came out, uh, Making Love, directed by Canadian Arthur Hiller, which was supposed to be the first kind of big Hollywood movie to portray 
a, a gay relationship in this case between um, Harry Hamlin and Michael Ontkeen, who had been in uh, Slapshot and would later be in Twin Peaks, and um, Kate Jackson from um, Charlie's Angels and the Scarecrow and Mrs. King was that, was that her? Yeah, that's her too. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> was uh, kind of the woman caught in the middle uh, between these two men, and it uh, it was not a good film. It was not terribly well received. You know, it, it was kind of a landmark in a way, I suppose. But it was, it, it was. You know, this is a full decade after Sunday Bloody Sunday, and it's not nearly as entertaining or uh, memorable as, as that film. So, so clearly, uh, American filmmakers uh, a little behind the times uh, in terms of um, at, at least on a major, uh, you know, a major studio kind of scale. But uh, but in England, things were were really happening in the, in the 1980s, and and there's a number of wonderful films. Uh, that came out around that time. And uh, My my Beautiful Laundrette, directed by Stephen Frears. Actually, Stephen Frears has a couple of films that we're going to talk about. But uh, from 1985, My Beautiful Laundrette um, is a fantastic film that holds up really well today. Uh, notable to, to many as kind of the first major role for um, Daniel Day-Lewis, who, oddly enough, also turns up in Sunday Bloody Sunday as a very uh, doer-looking uh, 14-year-old uh, who's uh, scraping the sides of cars with a glass bottle for about all of 10 seconds. I think he's on screen. But uh, it, it was kind of interesting to see him turn up uh, and looking unmistakably like Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> with a mop of black hair in yeah. front of his face. But yeah, yeah. and speaking of him, we'll be talking about him in an upcoming episode of our show here. Uh, and, and, and this film uh, has a great script by Hanif Karishi about um, a young uh, South London Pakistani uh, wannabe businessman who's, who's trying to find his inn uh, with his family, who are all successful landlords and, and uh, hustlers and all that kind of thing. They kind of run the gamut of, of uh, business, both uh, acceptable and uh, kind of under the table. And um, he, uh, he befriends a, a street hood, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, uh, who he... Um, Kind of corrals into helping him fix up his uh, his uncle's rundown laundrette and turn it into kind of a, a very glamorous place to wash your unmentionables. <laughs> you know, lots of lots of neon lights and and uh, bright colors and, and definitely uh, a far cry from the the dreary um, dreary laundry that uh, that we that we see at the start of the film. And of course, they form a, a relationship over the course of the film. But um, our our, uh, our young businessman, played by Goran Warnecki, uh, he's uh, you know he's got decisions to make. You know he wants to be a, an upwardly mobile man in this new new London, the Thatcherite London, where um, you know the dollar seems to be uh, the overriding uh, principle that runs everything. And uh, so this relationship that starts up with with uh, with Daniel Day Lewis's character has to fall under the consideration of um, you know propriety. He's he's also considering this relationship with his uh, female cousin, so he's kind of torn between that, which I guess is acceptable uh, at at, uh, at this time in this place. But um, uh, so so there's that battle between respectability and dangerous love, and and uh, you know it's it's very light, it's very uh, very funny. Um, you know there are some threats to to the business and 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 to their lives, but uh, it's. Uh, it's a it's a very warm and human film, and I think it holds up really well. Yeah, it was great to go back to see it. I have a soft spot for films made in the UK in the 1980s due to my having lived there around that time, and this certainly brought back a lot of memories of the... It really showed that London in the 80s was not that much that glamorous a place. It was... Uh, it was pretty rough and certainly certain parts of town were rougher than others certainly here that's the case uh but i i really i think that this film also fits into that sort of kitchen sink 
kind of genre of a lot of low budget British films that are focused on the uh, on the working class Brit, and uh, and this of course incorporates the the immigrant experience into it, and uh, and and it it really does it does have this wonderful kind of quality while it's you know showing tough characters and tough circumstances it has this dreamy quality in the score and the sort of bubbly background theme mm-hmm. it's almost a fable mixed into this tale of family and ambition and about and business and how the how if you have your own business it's almost like it's like the the highest dream of the uh, of the immigrant experience and you know anybody uh, it, it's an opportunity to make something for yourself and and I I really got that from the film and I I love the performances certainly uh, young Daniel Day Lewis is you know he's all Cockney and frosted tips <laughs> and he's he's really something in this I can see why he uh, he you know anyone watching this would go oh yeah that guy he's got star quality for sure and of course you know the character he's playing is very different from his from his real background you know trained and from a very uh, well to do British family and here he's playing a, a street hood but 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 he's he's fairly convincing you wouldn't. Uh, you wouldn't quite realize that that was his background from from this role. Yeah, he, British or Irish. I guess he grew up in London, but he has comes from an yeah. Irish background. Yeah, yeah. No, you'd never know. Um, and then uh, Stephen Frears kind of continues down this path with his next film, which is uh, Prick Up Your Ears, uh, which is a, a true life story based on the life of uh, uh, wildly radical London playwright, uh, although he's originally from Lancashire. Uh, I guess uh, playwright uh, Joe Orton, and then there's some some nods towards that uh, where where we see young Joe trying to get rid of his Lancashire accent, which is usually associated with um, you know they mentioned that Richard Attenborough was from from that part of London. okay, but but uh, mostly uh, Lancashire, uh, you know, at that time in the British mindset, you'd probably think of uh, cheeky chap uh, George Formby, who was kind of like the musical hero of. Of, of Lancaster, who um, you know played the banjolele and and had that thick uh, thick Lancashire accent, and you know maybe even played it up a little bit. It's hard to say, but he was. So, a, so the, but the lead is played by was it Gary Oldman? I haven't yeah. seen it in ages. Uh, but of course, that's interesting. You know, we talk about Daniel Day Lewis, who's up for an Oscar this year, and Gary Oldman, who is probably the favorite uh, going into the Oscar season uh, for his role as Churchill. Um, but yeah, he's it's it's hard to believe he was ever this young. I know it's crazy. Uh, think about the films like this and um, and uh, I was going to say the hit, but that's Tim Roth. It's, it's so so often I get the two. Well, you know, in my brain, uh, it's yeah, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Exactly. <laughs> well, yes. Well, that's that's kind of where <laughs> the two become one, I, I suppose. Um, and uh, and Oldman is fantastic as this young man who's who basically comes from the Midlands down to uh, to London at the height of. There's in fact an early scene where he. Um, meets up with uh, the man who would become his partner and eventually his killer, uh, spoiler alert, uh, Kenneth Hallowell, played by Alfred Molina, with this kind of simmering rage and jealousy and, and is a fantastic performance as well. And, uh, you know, so we get Orton um, coming to London at the time of, uh, there was this huge kind of Britain celebrating itself, the Festival of Britain in, in the early 1950s. And um, and he comes to, to London at this height of, of you know, British pomp and circumstance and uh, you know he's just completely captivated by the city and and uh, this fresh new movement of course the 60s comes right along after that and he's really in his element then uh, you know he gets to write a screenplay for the Beatles which uh, doesn't get produced I think I think it was called up against it where it was going to posit the fab four as these kind of 
crazed radicals who are just like, he, as he says, shagging everything in sight. So I, I, I can see why that maybe that didn't go over so well with uh, Brian Epstein at, <laughs> at the time, you know, when he, when he submitted it. But, um, you know, has fantastic uh, success in the West End with his plays, Loot and Entertaining Mr. Sloan. Uh, uh, you know, film uh, plays that kind of push the boundaries of what's acceptable on a West End stage. And he's he's really the darling of the theater circuit, but he's also, you know, he's a, he's a, you know, he likes to push buttons, and especially where Hallowell is concerned, who's a you know insanely jealous and very unsatisfied, and and he kind of he gets him kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of position with the relationship, which obviously boils over into violence. Uh, and uh, the film is kind of structured. We've we've got kind of the when the film starts, Orton is already dead. He's already been killed, um, and. Uh, so we, we bounce back and forth between his life, you know, going from boyhood in, in or, you know, being a young man in, in, in uh, Lancaster, wanting to, to come to the big city. Uh, and uh, we get Vanessa Redgrave as his, um, I guess, as his agent who, um, you know, she, she discovers his, she goes to the crime scene, finds his diaries and realizes what a hot property they'll be. And she actually, I think she actually finds the Beatles screenplay as well, which I think was eventually published. Um, but, uh, and, she, and she's basically telling other people the story that she finds in the diaries. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's a vivid portrayal of the time. Um, you know, obviously it was the late 60s. Uh, being gay was, in fact, a crime. You could go to jail for it. Uh, and, uh, you know, as we saw in the, the film about Alan Turing, uh, you know, he actually, you know, we see what happened when you were arrested and you did, you know, have to pay for your so-called crime. So there is that thread as well. Because and we saw when we, we also saw the naked civil servant some oh, a right. while back, uh, and that had similar concerns. Exactly. So, uh, and, and a great John Hurt performance there. So uh, there is that element of danger. Joe Orton, you know, likes sex rough, and he likes it in subway station stairwells. And, and you know, he's, you know, it's really that element of danger that kind of thrills him. And, of course, that doesn't exist in his uh, relationship with Halliwell anymore. They've got, they share a room. Uh, their landlady seems to be okay with their relationship and it's very safe and he's not into that anymore. It's safe was never uh, something he was interested in. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a much different uh, relationship than the one shown in my beautiful Andrette. You know, the, the, there's, there's that um, sense of menace and, and uh, that the, the power games that they, that they play against each other. Halliwell, of course, uh, he, you know, he tries to, it's interesting, like kind of like the character, Murray Head character in Sunday, Bloody Sunday, you know, he's, he's an artist, but nobody wants to buy his art. It's, 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 it's very kind of self-indulgent and doesn't really speak to anybody. And uh, meanwhile, Orton is like the toast of the town. And so, of course, the jealousy uh, is, is professional as well as uh, romantic. So you've got those two spears kind of working against each other. And... Um, it, you know, it, it, it's a great portrayal of those kind of relationships where everything just goes horribly, horribly wrong. Um, you know, set against a, a, one of the most you know fascinating times in history. So I, I, I certainly recommend it. And and um, you know, young old men is just a firebrand. It's just, <laughs> it's, Nicely put. Yeah, uh, pretty much. I mean, uh, he's just. Uh, you know, you can't take your eyes off him. He's bouncing off the walls through the whole thing. It's, it's amazing. Now, you also saw Parting Glances, the Bill Sherwood film uh, starring a uh, young Steve Buscemi. Did you want to say a couple things about that? Yeah, well, getting back, to, coming back to North America, uh, you know, after Making Love was a big bust, the studios were figuring that oh, nobody wants to see these kind of stories. <laughs> you know, so uh, and uh, so interest in, in more feature films 
portraying a realistic um, gay relationships, gay lifestyle. Uh, that wasn't going to happen. Uh, not on that scale. So uh, you're going to see it more often in the independent films. And Parting Glances is a, is really a, a time capsule of a film from the mid-'80s. It was really kind of the start of the first film to kind of tackle, tackle the AIDS epidemic. Um, it's notable for having uh, Steve Buscemi in his first feature film role as a, as a young man. He's a musician. He's a musician of some note. They, sh- they show him in sort of music videos throughout the film, and a, he's always playing music or he's got instruments around his apartment. And he's, um, you know, he's got HIV, and, and everybody knows it. It's not a secret. Um, and uh, it, it's, but everyone treats him like he's already on his way out the door, and he's, he really doesn't want to go out that way. He's already giving possessions away and, and talking about you know, what's going to happen after he's gone and that sort of thing. And of course, unfortunately, the director Bill Sherwood uh, he would actually die of AIDS uh, about four years after this film came out. So uh, you know, there's this sense of people living on borrowed time in a way. Um, he uh, he had to borrow the money to make the film. Like it was in post production when he kind of ran out of funds and he managed to get enough together to to get the last couple of shots that he needed and and um, and get this film made and out onto the festival circuit. Uh, you know, it, and it, it's it's weird that Steve Buscemi's character actually isn't the main character. He's kind of third build in the film. But the, it, you know, once it became well known through things like Reservoir Dogs and so on, um, this film kind of took on a second life for people. Who, you know, his his pictures on the video box and and uh, you know people wanted to see it because it was notable for being his first role. But it's really an ensemble piece in a lot of ways. Um, you know, the main characters are these two gay men who are trying to figure out where they're going in their lives and one of them wants to you know go off to to Europe and work and and kind of leave New York behind um and uh it's it's filmed on about three different locations to save money so uh it it's it is very low budget and feels like a you know independent film of the 1980s but it for whatever reason Sherwood injects it with some extra life in in a very uh very smart script uh some very well defined characters uh, the bulk of the film takes place at a party that's it's being thrown. It's kind of a going away party for um, one of the main characters. But, uh, you know, it's also like Bashemi pulls himself out of his bed to, to go to this party and sort of make one last appearance. But it doesn't it doesn't dwell on death. It, it's not a morose film. It, it's really more about, you know, living life while you can. And uh, I think it's a, a pretty unique film for that. Uh, I also want to give a quick tip of the hat before we leave Britain behind entirely to Morris or Maurice actually is how it's <laughs> it's written but everyone calls him Morris from 1987 this is uh, James Ivory's film from the Merchant Ivory stable uh, of course James Ivory wrote the screenplay for Call Me By Your Name and uh, this is one uh, came out at a time when Ivory and Merchant and screenwriter Ruth Prower Javala were in the midst of making a lot of great period dramas, and they made this right after their big hit, Room with a View. So this is another E.M. Forster adaptation, a book that was published posthumously due to the, you know, the concern about a scandal regarding depicting homosexual love. Uh, yeah, and it's a, uh, it's, it's a lovely, involving uh, period drama. It's very, very English. Uh, and it starts well. Simon Callow is a teacher instructing the young Morris on the mysteries of sex by drawing imagery in the sand at the beach, which is hilarious. And then we <laughs> go th- forward to 1909, where college-age Morris, uh, James Wilby, who everyone seemed to call Paul for some reason, he's at Cambridge, where he has conversations about religion and faith with Clive, Hugh Grant, and Risley, Mark Tandy. Uh, and it's uh, it's about the relationship between Clive and Morris, and they goes up and down, and how they struggle with, 
trying to hide it and the shame involved with it. Eventually, Clive deciding that he's had enough, although he loves Morris and, and desires him and wants to be with him. He can't take the shame. He can't take the possible ruination of his reputation and his life. So he marries a woman. And it's about Wilby, Wilby's character, Morris, coming to terms with who he is. And, uh, and eventually, he's, he's not the most likable guy, but by the end of the film, he's done, he's just accepted who he he is and and it's a pretty interesting arc uh so yeah i think i think it's it's worth of a worth a look if you're considering uh going back to watch these movies uh because it it is uh it, there's some great performances there and certainly another young uh actor hugh grant before he was a star plays a very different kind of character than he would come to be known for the sort of charming stuttering uh british leading <laughs> man here he's he's much more repressed and and much more tortured yeah he used to show a lot more range early on in those sort of earlier films until he got sort of shunted into that um you know the the, the charming four weddings and a funeral kind of <laughs> kind of role that he seemed to play over and over again you know it's kind of fun to see him channeling peter sellers and paddington too uh, but but certainly he took a few more risks in his early career and uh I haven't watched this film in, in well over a decade. I think I watched it on Laserdisc, uh, which tells you how far back it was, although we did watch Boys in the Band on Laserdisc uh, the other day. But, um, uh, and I, I remember it being a lovely film and a, and a really, really sensitive uh, portrayal of these characters and uh, you know, made me want to check out more of the Merchant Ivory oeuvre. So I believe we're running short of time here, and I really want to give a few nods to some great films, uh, some more recent ones, and ones that are coming out in 2018 that I've had the good fortune to see. Um, I wanted to say that I was a big fan of Beginners. This is the Mike Mills semi-autobiographical tale, which follows the life of a 30-something designer named Oliver, Ewan McGregor, who begins dating a French actor played by Melanie Laurent, all while his father, Hal... Uh, Christopher Plummer is coming out as a gay man in his in his 70s and then his subsequent illness um, and it's really what's interesting about the film I spoke to Mike Mills about it and it's about a ge- the generational divide how uh, Christopher Plummer's character Hal when he was a younger man saw didn't see any opportunity for himself as a gay man so he decided to get married even though he and his wife both knew about his proclivities his interests in in uh in and being gay and it's about how his son sort of understands his father better and understands why he would do what he does even though he would find that kind of choice in his own life in the present day to be intolerable like you know people just don't make those kinds of decisions anymore about their lives. At least we don't, not in this society and not this time. It's just not something that you hear about. So yeah, Beginners is a wonderful film. It's very sad, but it's also really lovely and full of warmth and uh, and the kind of warmth that I think that uh, Call Me By Your Name has some of too. Um, also want to give a shout out to Pride, another British film set in the 80s about the, the minor strike, but has yeah. but really dips into the British, uh, British gay culture at the time. And it's a wonderful, raucous, uh, laugh out loud film that I, I really love from a couple of years ago. Yeah, it's a great look back at it. It's funny because it's, it's set in the time that My Beautiful Laundrette was made. So it's interesting to have a film from now that looks back at that time and, and Maybe maybe that would make a good double feature at home. There you go. Uh, and I watched. I wanted to have a look on Netflix to see about their genre, their LBT. Uh, 
LGBTQ, excuse me, uh, uh, choices. And they have a ton of stuff there. I, many of films, independent films, I've never heard of. So I just started watching one, uh, and I it was called I Am Michael, uh, directed by Justin Kelly. And it tells a true story of Michael Glatz, who is an American gay activist who renounced his lifestyle and became an anti-gay pastor, starring James Franco, the very problematic these days, James Franco, and Zachary hmm. Quinto. And it's a really interesting film, and partly because it's actually set in Halifax, so they didn't shoot it here. Um, and uh, it's about, it's a kind of story you don't see much of, that that change from being gay to being not gay and then being reacting against it. And, and there's actually a documentary as well on Netflix called Michael Lost and Found that is only, it's only about 20 minutes long and it tells the actual story of what happened there. It's a, it's a little more sophisticated and a little more complex than the film would lead you to believe. Uh, I think Glatzy actually ha- was suffering some some mental illness and uh and but there's much forgiveness in the story by the end so uh yeah i, I would still think it's it's worth worth seeing um and uh and finally a couple of movies coming out in 2018 to keep your eyes open for the chilean film a fantastic woman which is up for an academy award for best foreign language film i really hope people get a chance to see it i saw it at the atlantic international film festival and it is amazing it's a story of a trans woman who uh, played by Daniela Vega, who is a trans woman, uh, fighting for her rights after her partner dies, uh, and it is and you know the fighting for against indignities and injustices, and she's amazing, and the performance is incredible. She's sort of like she reminded me a bit of Javier Bardem's lovely younger sister, uh, and <laughs> and and finally uh, a film called God's Own Country, which was a huge hit in the UK in 2017. It should be arriving on our shores in 2018. It's the story about a young farmer in uh, in Yorkshire uh, who who uh, whose family sort of takes in a, a refugee to help on the farm, and they have a relationship together. And it's about the refugee, uh, the Romanian fellow, basically teaching him how to be intimate and how to be gentle in a way that his life has had no space for and his his self-esteem around being gay is is completely he hasn't been able to deal with that so it is is a really strong and 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 lovely film as well in this genre in this sort of a queer cinema and i would uh, really recommend that when it shows up well that wraps up our look at queer films here on this week's lends me your ears i hope you enjoyed this trip through time and through uh, a bunch of interesting cinema both uh, some well-known titles and some some lesser known ones and hope you can track uh, some of these down they're not always the easiest films to find uh, my name is stephen cook and you can find me on twitter at ns underscore s-c-o-o-k-e i'm karsten ox and i'm on twitter as well uh you can find me at uh, flaw in the iris which is the name of my blog uh we have an email that we uh, almost never check <laughs> That's at uh, Podcast at gmail.com. And uh, there's also Twitter and Facebook for the podcast. And uh, if you feel like uh, supporting the show, you can always do that through our Patreon. Once again, we want to thank the folks at CKDU for letting us use their facilities and airing the show every other Tuesday at 5.30 p.m. And also uh, the Village Soundcast Network, who put all the uh, ribbons and bows on it and tie it all together. And, uh, of course, uh, Gypsophilia, sadly no longer with us, who provide the music. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.